Hello, Service Coordinators. This is Dan Berger for the Service Coordinator Podcast. Today, we're doing a little something different. We're going to introduce our guest, Dr. Gina Noble, uh, before we start the actual show. But before I do that, I want everybody to please subscribe to the podcast, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or whether it's through the videos on YouTube. Please like the shows. And what I'd really like you to do is comment on the shows. Let me know what you guys want to hear about what you want to talk about, what kind of guests, maybe if you guys have a guest that you'd like to see on the podcast, put it in the comments and I'll reply back. Uh, also, we're going to be doing these podcasts every two weeks um, is the plan. And I've got a bunch lined up. Uh, this week, or this podcast is actually regarding breast cancer awareness, which was back in October. And I know it's November now, so I apologize. But today we brought on Dr. Gina Noble, she is from the Zangmeister Cancer Center in Columbus, Ohio. She's an attending oncologist and hematologist caring for patients with benign and malignant hematologic diagnosis, as well as solid tumors, served as a faculty participating in the education of medical students and internal medicine residents at Mount Carmel Health System. She's doing that right now. And I'm sure I messed up a bunch of those medical terms. So. Dr. Gina Noble, she's done numerous lectures and presentations over the years. She's published over 10 publications and countless awards, multiple committees and leadership uh, positions. I can't even name them all, but this was a great podcast brought on my boss, Matt Kellmeyer. And uh, we got to ask some questions about um, breast cancer awareness and talk about what service coordinators can do for their, their residents. So I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you. Hello, service coordinators. Welcome to the Service Coordinator Podcast. My name is Dan Berger. I think this is episode number 14 or so of the Service Coordinator Podcast. Today, we are joined by a couple folks here. Uh, we'll first go with my boss, Matt Kellmeyer. Um, gosh, you know, Matt, I had to look up your job, what, what your actual title was. So you're AVP of Community Relations at National Church Residences. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you, Dan. And Dr. Gina Noble of uh, the Zangmeister uh, cancer Center here in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Noble, welcome to the uh, Service Coordinator Podcast. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much. Thanks so, for having me. All right. Well, uh, yep. Matt was, was uh, asking me, he said, who can we get on the, the um, podcast that we could talk to um, here in Columbus, Ohio, that we have ties with? And, you know, his, your name was the first one that he brought up. And so, uh, you know, we're so happy to have you. Is this the first podcast you've done? It is. So oh, good, 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 good. <laughs> All right. Well, I can already see that Matt's itching to just talk because that's typically what that's he what does. I do. So, Matt, I'm going to let you kick off uh, the first question for Dr. Noble. And Very good. there. Well, and first of all, we're thrilled to have Dr. Noble here because uh, she's quite uh, an esteemed uh, oncologist. And if, 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 if we were, as you've heard on her bio, you know, frankly, if to look at her, you would think that she started uh, her med school when she was 14, but we know Aww. that's not true. So that Thank being said, you. though, 
Um, we probably, most of our service coordinators are well aware that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And uh, most individuals in this country also are aware that breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. Every two minutes, someone is diagnosed in the United States with breast cancer. Um, I would also say that, you know, there have been incredible, there's been a lot of progress regarding um, uh, the curing and even just extending someone's life who has been diagnosed with breast cancer. There have been a lot of strides made in that regard. And that's partly been due to people like uh, Dr. Noble, you know, in doing research. But I also wanted, I also thought about the fact that so many service coordinators serve older adults in apartment buildings that frankly, 95 to 98% of the residents are actually women. So I thought this would be a very good topic to, if you will, educate service coordinators on how they can educate and advocate for their residents to, uh, you know, basically make them well aware of what they can do to reduce the likelihood that they have breast cancer to get all the right testing so that should, you know, something come up that it is dealt with quickly. And so, but before we get there, I always have to ask this question. And I ask this question to almost every physician I work with. And that is, what was your driving force? What, was, what were the reasons that you decided you wanted to be an oncologist, Dr. Noble? Hey, no, that's a great question. I would have to say the patients. I mean, you know, they are, you know, cancer doesn't discriminate. You see all walks of life in the cancer clinic and they have a real problem, right? So you're really just trying to help them and they, they are just working so hard and striving so hard to live, right? And to get through this, you know, daunting, overwhelming diagnosis. So it's very humbling, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. and you want to help them, you want to help improve the care. And I think it just, honestly, it changes your perspective on life. Like the things that, you know, sometimes would stress people out, you know, like the homeowners association that comes after you for like whatever in your yard, <laughs> such a small thing compared to what these people are dealing with. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard sometimes because people always say, how do you do that every day? But, and it, it can be really sad, but it, it's also mm -hmm. really motivating. And it's also really humbling to remember like, look, we're really lucky, you know, we have our health. And so, um, so that combination of things and, and just helping those patients that really are in a vulnerable spot um, to, with a real problem, you know, try to, try to get better, try to get through it. So, yeah. That's wonderful. Appreciate that. I think we could probably use six or seven more thousand people like you with that type of perspective. That's wonderful. Um, so knowing that we, that these, that our service coordinators work so much with older women, what would you like them to know to be able to give that information out to the residents we serve? Right. So I think finding who would be at risk or who is we need to kind of evaluate further. So, you know, we know that age and um, being a female are the two biggest risk factors for breast cancer. Um, so that population is obviously at risk. Interestingly, though, like, you know, over the age of 70, like screening mammograms are kind of controversial because the thought is you're unlikely to find a really, you know, just screening wise, your, your yield is lower. Although I, there's some controversy because I, I kind of feel like age is just a number, especially the older I get. <laughs> and so I, it's more about life expectancy. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if we've got a lot of 70 year olds that probably are going to very well live 25 years, you know, as opposed to some patients maybe younger or not. So anyway, that's that's the controversy there. But I think just recognizing that women, as we get older, you know, we are at risk for that. 
I think family history is important to keep in mind too. Um, you know, we know that most cancers, breast cancers are not inherited, but 10% are and kind of honing in on those, pa those patients that might be at more risk if they have a strong family history, their, their sisters had breast cancer, their mom had breast cancer, their daughter, that may be something that we really want to keep on our radar, you know, um, in terms of who to really think about screening and looking into. And then if a woman, you know, is feeling symptoms, like whether that be a, a, a painful or mass in the breast or inflammation or changes into the skin, it's not really, those are things that would, we definitely would want to check out, you know, in, turn, in terms of honing in on people that to kind of look into things further. Okay. That, no, no, I, that, that, that's very helpful. And what would you say for, I mean, the average age of our resident is 79 years old, just so you know, uh, living in an independent environment. Uh, let me play devil's advocate. Well, I'm 74 years old. Can I really change my lifestyle to reduce the likelihood that I'm going to get cancer? Um, can you address that question that I'm, I'm, I suspect many of our residents have that perspective? Right, right. And there, that's a reasonable perspective. I mean, I think there's limits to how much we can modify. Um, you know, obviously living a healthy lifestyle, like that's always good for your general health, right? Whether it be heart disease or, or cancer. Um, you know, we know alcohol use and, and, you know, the excessive alcohol use can be associated with breast cancer. That's something that can modify. Um, being aware of your body and, and just recognizing if, not, not that you can prevent cancer with that, but if you see something or feel something that's different, like getting it evaluated sooner versus later can make a big difference in terms of whether it's a curable situation, a fixable situation, or it becomes a situation that we're palliating and we really can't fix, but we can you know, we have limits to what we can do. So I think that's important, you know, to, to these women to, to, to say, hey, if you've got, we want to keep your quality of life good, you know, so be, get evaluated if you're sensing that something is different in your body, you know. Well, and you just, you just alluded to something I think that is, I think everyone would really like to hear more about, and that is the progress that um, we have made as in the healthcare system for treating breast cancer. And if you wouldn't mind, talking about that for a few minutes as far as what uh, what you've what you've seen in your uh, in your career as far as some of the progress and and uh, improvements if you will into treating breast cancer absolutely and there's a lot I could talk about um I think one of the big things people maybe don't realize because I think we always say well, we want to cure more cancer we want to get better at curing it and we are we are advancing that but one thing we're doing is we're finding that sometimes less is more. So like in breast cancer, you know, 25 years ago, we used to do modified radical mastectomies where you did a lot more surgery. You did a lot more radiation. We gave a lot more IV chemotherapy, which is my world. And we're learning as the decades pass that we can maybe do a little less surgery. We can do a lumpectomy. We can maybe omit or avoid radiation in some patients and we can avoid chemotherapy in, in a lot of women. So we can do less treatment, but the outcomes are similar in terms of how many women are cured. And we're doing that by kind of individualizing the cancer. So, um, you know, we look at the stage anatomically, but I think a really important thing is what we call tumor biology. So how the cancer behaves. So, you know, if a cancer has been there a while, eventually it's going to go to the lymph nodes and it's going to become a more advanced stage. But that may not be a reflection of how aggressive it is. It may just be an, an, a reflection of how long it's been there. Um, so we can actually hone in on the, on the actual behavior of the cancer by sending a sample off for DNA evaluation or genetic evaluation. Because the cancer, like just like you and I, has its own DNA. And there are certain mutations that we know are present or not present and can suggest a more aggressive cancer or a less aggressive cancer. So there's these things called genomic assays, which are done on the cancer itself. And they come up with a recurrence score to kind of say, hey, how aggressive is this cancer? And if it's, and a lot of times it's a low risk cancer. And we know 
we've done clinical trials to say that those patients that have a low number, a low recurrence score, that chemotherapy really doesn't help them. So even if they have a positive lymph node and you know we're worried about their stage, the tumor biology is very favorable. So we can learn that we don't have to give those women chemo. So that's great because they're getting cured, but they're not going through chemotherapy, losing their hair, all of those nasty side effects. We can do less, you know, less aggressive treatment. And then I guess another big area where we've made advancements is in, in cancer in general is targeted therapies. So, you know, chemotherapy, if you think about it, is kind of barbaric. It's, it's, it's basically killing all quickly growing healthy cells. So it's not really honing in on the cancer cell. It's, that's why patients lose their hair or they have nausea because it's honing in on other quickly growing cells in your body. But if we can target just the cancer cell, we can have a lot less side effects and, you know, equal or better efficacy in terms of treating the cancer. So, you know, breast cancer is probably like the first cancer that we have a targeted therapy for because we know most breast cancers are estrogen positive. So they're driven by estrogen and estrogen receptors are on those cancer cells. So we have blocks, blockers of that. You may have heard of the pill tamoxifen. It's been yes. a long time. And that's kind of the first targeted therapy in a sense, because it's really focusing on that estrogen receptor in, in the cancer cell. It's not going to our hair or you know, other parts of the body. So that's a very good example. Um, over the recent years, we found that there's other targets. You may, you may hear of triple negative breast cancer or, or her, triple positive breast cancer. Mm -hmm. So there's another receptor called HER2 nu, which is kind of the third of the three. So there's estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor. Those are both hormones. And then this HER2 nu is a totally different thing that's an epidermal growth factor. But anyway, 20% of breast cancers express this, this, this marker. And we have targeted drugs that target that. And that, that's not expressed on healthy cells. So we can use that targeted drug to kind of focus more just on the cancer cells, have less side effects on the body, and have better treatment. So that's a big advancement and an example of that. Um, we're also seeing, like, you may have heard of immunotherapy. It's all over the commercials for cancer, mm -hmm. Keytruda, Opdivo. Um, those drugs are called checkpoint inhibitors or immunotherapies, and they kind of use your own immune system to fight the cancer. So we know that our immune system is a big barrier to getting cancer. We know that our immune system says, hey, you're a weird cancer cell, you know, and, and kills it off. If our immune system's weakened at all, we're more susceptible to cancer. And that's why as we get older, our immune systems get a little bit weaker and we can be prone. Patients that are on immunosuppressive treatment for other reasons may be more prone to cancer. Anyway, mm -hmm. immunotherapy revs up your immune system and it, it kind of to work against the cancer. And it has very different and in fact, better side effects than chemo. So anyway, those are a couple. That's a long answer to your question. Sorry. No, no, that's good. Those are a few like big areas where we're kind of advancing and individualizing cancer care in general and, and breast cancer care. Well, that's, that's exciting to hear. I, and when I hear you talk about curing cancer, and then there's also, depending upon the stage, it's not about curing it, but actually managing it. Could you kind of talk about the differences there and what that looks like? Absolutely. So, so yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, so people that have early stage, like stage one, two, three, localized breast cancer to the breast and to the armpit, you know, lymph nodes, the armpit, we're really trying to cure the disease. And we're going to be pretty aggressive with that because, you know, if you can make the cancer go away and cure it, you're going to, you're going to push the envelope a little bit. And it's, it's a finite amount of time. Like you'll, you'll do surgery and then you'll do so many months of potentially chemotherapy or targeted therapy. If you feel that that's necessary, you'll do a course of several weeks of radiation therapy. If that's necessary, a patient may take a pill like tamoxifen for five, mm -hmm. 10 years. So it's a finite amount of time and you're really hoping to cure the disease. The other situation, metastatic cancer, so stage four cancer, or patients that we thought were cured and unfortunately the cancer comes back in, in a different organ to someplace else. 
we know once cancer goes to a different organ and it's in multiple organs, say, you know, we just, we know we generally can't cure it, but we can definitely treat it. So the, you know, kind of the game plan is a little bit different. You know, I kind of talk with most of my patients and say, hey, this is our goal here is to make this like a chronic disease. So we want to give you treatment. We want to put you on drug X and hopefully that'll be the drug with the less, least amount of side effects, but we'll do a good job of controlling the cancer and preventing the cancer from causing you problems, you know, whether they be pain or whatever symptoms you might develop from it keep that cancer in check for as long as possible, you know, with a, with a drug that has acceptable side effects. And, you know, that could be years that they're on that drug. Mm-hmm. For some patients, it may be months, you know, and it, it varies based on the patient, based on the, the, the profile of that cancer. But you keep them on that drug for as long as you think that it's doing its job of keeping the cancer in check and that the patient is tolerating it acceptably well. And you may drop the dose down to, to, to minimize the side effects. You may do modifications like that, but your, your number one goal is, is quality of life and then quantity. And you know, you, if say that drug works for say for a year and then you, you're doing imaging like CAT scans every so often to kind of look and say, hey, is the cancer still in check? And at some point the natural history is that it will progress and you'll, mm-hmm. that, can't, that drug won't work as well anymore. And you'll say, okay, now's the time to kind of switch gears and we'll switch to the next line of treatment, you know, and we have a long list of options. Um, we even do that genetic testing I was talking about earlier in early stage breast cancer. We do something similar to look for targets. So that might help us kind of prioritize which drug to give in which order, because it might give mm-hmm. us a clue as to what might be a more susceptible target for, you know, a drug target um, for, for a particular patient's cancer. So you might start with that option first and then use that as long as it's the patient's tolerating it and it's having, you know, good, good control of their disease and then move on to something else when you need to. So not to say that cancer is the same as diabetes or anything like that, but there are some, some parallels you could draw where, you know, diabetics, you know, type two diabetes, you start on pills and then a patient may eventually need to go on insulin. So you're kind of mm-hmm. continuing to re, you know, re, reassess the plan and the treatment based on how well the disease is controlled. So I try to talk with patients like that, you know, and again, realizing it, it can be very different and it can be very scary, but we definitely do have patients where that's the case, you know, where we, we see them, we treat them for years. I have patients in my practice, I've been here for 11 years and mm-hmm. I've got patients that I've been treating with stage four metastatic breast cancer for that long, you know, so it's definitely out there. So. Well, and that, I mean, you think about that, that, that unto itself. And again, obviously you're not curing something, you're managing symptoms, if you will, that's right. still, you know, that, that, and that mind, that's very hopeful unto itself right there. Um, so you've talked a little bit about um, a lot of the progress that's been made from a research perspective and how it's able now to, we're able now to target, you know, only cancerous cells versus all cells and how that's reduced a lot of the, the side effects. Where do you see the future of cancer treatment going just based upon, you know, your understanding? I think it's going to become more and more individualized. So and some might even say that rather than treating lung cancer versus breast cancer, you're treating a patient's genetic profile of their cancer. And there may be a patient with lung cancer that looks almost like breast cancer because of the mutations that are there. So you're really Mm -hmm. doing this profile, this genomic profile on the cancer to see what targets are there. And you're you're perhaps in cancer, we know mutates over time. So perhaps you're reassessing that genomic testing every so often, rather than Mm -hmm. imaging, you're kind of doing another test again to see, hey, what's changed, what's mutated and what might be good drug targets. So I really think it's going to become more individualized as to you know, cancer X as opposed to breast cancer, if that makes right. sense. Right. Yeah. So in other words, instead of the origin, you just look at the individual and their genetic profile. Correct. Is that correct? Exactly. And I, I think that sounds great too. Yeah. Um, Dan, before I keep, 
<laughs> That's what Matt would have done way back. He, he knew oh, that. Yeah, sure. Before. That would have been when I, yeah, right. Dan, um, what do you, uh, do you have anything you wanted to ask? Because again, I know you yeah, come from that yeah. service coordinator perspective. And yeah, would... doctor. Well, I mean, Dr. Nope, you, you see patients every day, I'm assuming. Um, what, what, what keeps you moving forward? And, you know, you see people at their, in their worst times, scariest times. What, what keeps you going? And, and also, why did, why'd you get into medicine? Right. I think just, I mean, I love, so I'll start with the second question, I guess. I mean, I, I've always liked science, you know, I think it's, it's, it's really cool. It's kind of like a science geek, you know, and <laughs> I, I love that side of it. And so medicine, but I also love people and kind of, you know, interacting with people and having that. So it's, I feel like medicine is the perfect combination of those two things, you know, science and, and working with people and, and socializing people. So yeah, that, that was kind of what kind of drove me. And then, you know, like I talked earlier, oncology specifically, I think that those patients are special and they're dealing with, you know, very unique problems. And I think oncology in general is, advancing very medicine as a whole is advancing but i think oncology is advancing at a particularly rapid pace you know we have new drugs coming out seems like every week almost or every month at least you know and there's there's a lot of new drugs out there and a lot of advancements you know in a short amount of time which is that's a motivator too because gosh you know it used to be like you know lung cancer you had some chemotherapy drugs and most patients you know gosh, they, they were very sick that you'd really worry about how much you don't want to make the treatment worse than the, the problem. And you'd worry about that with some of these chemotherapies. Now we have these targeted pills out there for some patients that they can take a pill and live longer with great quality or this immunotherapy. And it's, we have options for patients that may not have had options before. So it's awesome to see that, you know, advancement and how it really is directly applied to a patient's life. You know, this patient's, you know, husband or wife or, or, or children are, are having more time, good quality time with, with that patient because of these these medications that have allowed them to live longer with good quality so it's that's to me a, a big motivator yeah yeah definitely well matt i mean you've you've asked quite a few questions so far so do you have any I'm more thrilled. okay i, I have one to, more if you don't mind i, I just have one i don't more want to take up all her time so well, I, I appreciate dr noble thank you so much for your time oh, i like it um where do you number one predict for us if you will do you think that we will one day eradicate cancer and we will no longer need oncologists? And what might that look like? I mean, I'm just curious because, I mean, for I mean, I'm 61 years old. From the time I've been 10, I've heard we're trying to cure cancer. We want to cure cancer. And obviously, that's a very broad, almost ambiguous statement. It is an ambiguous statement because there's so much to unpack. But... What are you, what's your opinion, based upon your expertise, right. of the possibility of one day going, I used to want to go into oncology as a physician, but there's no patients out there for me, you know, what are your thoughts? or is that just a pipe dream? What, yeah, I, mean, based I, I wish what? I could say, I honestly wish that I could, you know, I realize it's, you know, sabotaging my own career, but I, I wish I could say that I, I hope that it will go away. Unfortunately, I, I think it's so complicated and complex that I just, I worry that that's not going to happen. I think there's right. you know, more and more variables. We're living longer, you know, as a population that's, you know, that's a risk factor. There's more environmental, there's a lot we're learning about the environment and exposures and how that can impact the, you know, the getting cancer, right? We know that's high. Right. And then, you know, so it, it's very hard. And because every can cancer is different, it's like you said, it's not curing cancer is not like curing one cancer. There's always going to, we might get better at curing some of them, but there's always going to be those sort of outliers that are, you know, more aggressive, more, you know, th more, you know, stubborn that they, you know, they're very difficult to, to treat and they're not going to, we're not going to find those you know that magic bullet i don't think there's one magic bullet for cancer i think there's a million bullets and it's just a matter of how many of those we get a good bullet for you know 
So uh, unfortunately, I, I'd have to say I, I don't see that. Okay. Well, and, and you know, you, you're, you're begging my last question when you talked about environmental factors and different risk factors. Uh, and just if you could leave us with, you know, especially for our service coordinators to help educate our residents, as an oncologist, what would be the top three to five things you'd want every individual, every, let's just say every woman to do um, to reduce or mitigate the likelihood that she is going to get breast cancer? Right. So I think be aware of your of your family history. If you've got that strong family history, particularly at a young age, and, and also patients, you know, some of the residents, like if they have that history and, you know, they get cancer, like if they get that genetic testing, then their children and grandchildren could know about that mutation in their, in their family, you know, mm -hmm. and they could get tested. And then there could be preventative things we could do, whether that's prophylactic surgeries, you know, or high risk screenings with breast MRI and breast cancer, for example. Um, so that's that's a really big thing is this, is knowing your family history and just being aware of it and, and pursuing testing appropriately. Um, and number two would be being aware of your body, right? Like if something seems off, something seems different, like get it checked out. Don't, it's always better to check things out than just assume, you know, every day I see patients like, oh, I thought it was nothing. And then all of a sudden it's something and it's a big, much bigger something because they waited six months, you know? So just being aware of yourself. I mean, I think, and then the third thing, screenings are important. I think we definitely, you know, colonoscopies, they're, you know, they're important. There's some newer things, whatever, there's controversy, but colonoscopies, Breast imaging, I do think is good. We, I see, I may be biased seeing a lot of breast cancer patients, but the vast majority of my patients, when their cancer is diagnosed, it's through a mammogram and they didn't feel a thing. So getting that appropriate screening. I do agree that there, there's a point in time when, you know, if a patient has a lot of medical problems and their life expectancy is limited, they're on oxygen for COPD, they've got all these other medical issues, them going in to get a mammogram to detect a, you know, a very low risk early breast cancer is probably not helpful to their, you know, their quality and quantity of life. But for a lot of women, it, it can be very, it's, it's a good thing to do, you know, in the appropriate setting, so. What is the uh, minimum age for uh, women to go, what, what's the age they say go get a mammogram? So that's also controversial. Um, 40 is about the youngest. Um, There's some organizations that say 45. Um, my thought is, and I, I realize there can be false positives and all this, but again, I'm biased. So I feel like I, I, I feel like starting sooner probably makes the most sense. You know, I, I just feel like if you can catch one patient, I mean, that's just, that's a huge thing. So 40 to 45 is usually um, what you'll see from the national guidance. Sounds good. Anything else you would like to ask Dr. Noble, Dan? Uh, no, I am good. I'm good. Are you, any other questions? No, for you, Matt? Well, this is, this has been great. I appreciate the overview. I know this is some information that I think our service coordinators are going to find very helpful because so much of the time, I will just say this about our service coordinators. Many residents will go to a service coordinator before they'll go, believe it or not, to a doctor or in that. some cases their own family. So this kind of information can be very empowering to a service coordinator to say, well, based upon that, let's set you up with a physician appointment or let's do. So I very much appreciate this. This is sure. great information that I think is going to really help folks, you know, serve the residents we have much better. So thank you. Appreciate You're that. You're very welcome. It was great. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thanks, Dr. Noble. Thanks for coming on the Service Coordinator Podcast. And uh, we'll catch you guys next time. See ya. All right. Take care, guys. All right. Bye, thanks, Dr. Noble. All right. Thanks, Matt.